Now, if you turn with me uh, to the book of 2 Corinthians, oh, I'm sorry, to Romans 15 for our New Testament lesson, um, before we turn to our sermon text, we have an important passage before us that is connected to this matter that Paul uh, himself is addressing as he writes to the church of Corinth. This is Romans chapter 15, we'll read verses 22 to 29. Just to give you a certain sense of the chronology, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans uh, is written about a year or more after he's written the letter of 2 Corinthians. It's a pretty, uh, pretty close time gap there. This is Paul writing to the church of Rome. Again, Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia, now Achaia is the region where, second, or where uh, the, uh, Corinth is located, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they are pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them that what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Uh, Now if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We see here that this mission that Paul has undertaken, uh, the mission of collection for the needy in Jerusalem, weighs heavy on him as he also writes of this particular collection to the church of Corinth. Uh, This morning's sermon will focus on verses 6 to 8, but we'll begin reading in verse 1 again. Paul writes this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Again, those are the churches of Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the grace of participating in the relief, the diaconia, the diaconal work of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Verse 6, accordingly we urged Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our gracious God and fathers, we do consider your word as it has been given to us. We ask that you would be gracious to us 
that your spirit would enlighten our eyes to see uh, the riches found in Scripture, and that in doing so we might be gracious to others. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think we've all experienced uh, the same thing, the, the dreaded uh, moment of the annual review. I think those of you who have jobs know what it's like to sit in with your boss, to go uh, through that moment, to know uh, the areas that you have done well in and those areas in which you have failed. And it's not something that just adults deal with. Uh, kids have to deal with it as well with uh, the quarterly report card uh, and, and the dread of having to read what your, parents have, what your, your teachers have written and now bringing it home to your parents. Um, and the various categories that are found, those, those things that you spent your whole life training for, uh, perhaps in your particular vocation, uh, uh, that get certain marks, but then there are other things that you might consider uh, not as important that don't get uh, the best of marks. Let me explain. Consider what it would be like for a student entering uh, college as a freshman. He goes to the local state university, and he sits in uh, on, uh, uh, let's say, a freshman uh, literature class. The reason he signed up for this class is because he's, he's, he's familiar with this professor. In fact, this professor is the reason why the student has gone to college, to this particular college. Here's a guy who has written 10, 15 books, and you've devoured all of them, and you think, this is a man of brilliance. I can't wait to see what comes out of his mouth when he, when he lectures. And you show up for the first day, and it turns out that the guy can't put together a coherent lecture to save his life. You think of... Uh, the, the medical doctor who spends years uh, studying and, uh, and preparing uh, to go into the medical field to be a family doctor. And here's the most brilliant guy that deals with you know, X uh, particular topic. And you go to see him because you are in great need. And this guy is considered the best of the best. And though he is top of his class, he knows everything about anatomy and physiology he has the worst bedside manner you could ever experience. It really sours your taste and your experience of what it is that's going on. Uh, we could kind of uh, list other examples, but you know, you know what I mean. You have those particular things that you've studied for, for your particular job or vocation. And those are the things that you focus on, and there are other things that you have to do as well that you don't give as much attention to. And then the review comes, and it turns out you're, uh, you're kind of blinded by the review, and it turns out you've not received the best marks and those things that you should have given more attention to. I think the Christian life is uh, uh, much in the same, uh, the same way. There's so many things that we give a top-tier priority to. We think of our attention to doctrine, devotion, uh, morning devotions, prayer, Bible study. Uh, even church attendance, and yet there are other facets of the faith that uh, maybe it's not that we've ne neglected them altogether, but we don't see them as important, be it our conduct, what it is that we say about others, or even financial giving. Well, what we have before us in this passage is that the author of this letter, Paul, wants to help us recalibrate and start, begin to focus on those kind of what we might consider second-tier things and have us realize that, in fact, though they might be second-tier, right, we don't see any uh, confession of faith regarding financial giving in the Apostles' Creed, that it doesn't mean that these issues are not important. 
And he wants us to highlight these particular features of the Christian life so that we might shore up, just like an annual review does. It's not done to to browbeat us, but to help us recognize that there are particular facets of our life that we need to give attention to that perhaps we may have had fall off of our radar. These particular spheres of duties. And here we have a particular duty that is profoundly theological. So there's something I'd like us to consider uh, this morning, two considerations. First, we need to consider Titus's commissioned work. You'll see that here in verse 6, where we need to consider what it is that Titus has been commissioned to do alongside Paul. So the first half is going to be more of a, what we might call a Bible study mode. We need to think through what it is that Paul and Titus are doing together as we consider uh, the totality of the New Testament. And then secondly, we'll need to consider Corinth's gracious act in verses 7 and 8. So first we'll consider Titus in verse 6, and then uh, Corinth in verses 7 and 8. But for us to do so, I'd like us to take a moment and think about the world of finance today, and then contrast it with the world of finance in the first century. One of the things I really uh, enjoy about banking today is I don't even have to leave my house. You know, I've had the same credit union since I was 16 years old, you know what? It's in Orange Park, Florida. And guess what? Every paycheck that I get every two weeks, I don't have to drive 3,000 miles to my credit union in Orange Park, Florida to make a deposit. Guess what? We have direct deposit. Guess what? We We have mobile banking. I think the same is true for all of our various bills and sundry items. You can pretty much pay for all of your bills without having to leave the comforts of your own home. You don't have to uh, stand in line at the bank for the most part. Uh, There are no... um, Yeah, just long waits. I remember as a kid having to uh, stand in line with my parents as we went down even to the post office to mail uh, the the monthly house mortgage. We don't have to worry about those things today. Now I want you to think about how different that is in the first century. There aren't checks that you can write. There's no wire transfers. There are no ATMs. There are no paper bills. There's no armored cars. There's no courier service. And so think about what it is that Paul is actually having to do here. Paul is going from city to city across the Mediterranean, taking up a financial collection that is now going to have to be transferred from those various churches all the way back to Jerusalem. This is a massive undertaking, much more massive than we actually even have to think about in today's electronic age. So what do you do? What is the process that goes along with doing this? This is Paul's particular situation that he finds himself in. He has been commissioned to raise financial support among the churches that these finances are to be sent off to Jerusalem. This is a lot of logistical legwork that has to take place. Coin has to be lugged from Corinth by ship and by highway under the threat of kleptos and bandits to the mother church, to that of Jerusalem. When do you send the money? How much is the collection to be made? Who is it that takes the money? These are questions that the church has to face in particular. It is a massive undertaking. And it's not just Corinth that has to reckon with this, but it's all the daughter churches. It's all the church plants along the way. You need somebody to coordinate this effort. And guess what? Titus is the guy. This is what Titus has been commissioned to do. But we need to consider what it is that's going on in Jerusalem. Why is it that there is a diaconal mission that Paul has been directed uh, to uh, oversee uh, alongside with Titus as he goes from church to church on his missionary journeys? 
Well, if you read Acts chapter 11, it turns out that the city of Jerusalem has been in dire straits for about 15 to 20 years. If you remember in Acts chapter 11, uh, one of the prophets in uh, the early uh, church in Jerusalem stands up and prophesies of a massive famine that is about to befall Jerusalem and Judea. When was the last time a famine had been prophesied in, the, in, in Scripture? Elijah. Prior to that, you have Joseph in Egypt. So the fact that we have a prophecy regarding a massive famine in the region should attune ourselves that this isn't just a random uh, event. This is, this is a, a catastrophe. Uh, this is something that's impacting the entire church in um, the city and region of Jerusalem and its outlying regions. And so in Acts chapter 11, the apostles had determined quite early on, uh, this is Acts eleven twenty nine. the apostles determined to encourage each person according to his own ability to send relief to the Jerusalem church, to help raise support in the midst of a sister congregation in the midst of crisis. You know, for instance, I remember uh, when I was uh, pastoring a church out in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, receiving word of these fires that hit California a few years ago. And, and one of our churches, uh, one of our OP churches, had, had uh, I believe, if I recall, had burnt to the ground or had suffered great harm at the fire. So what did our denomination do? They took up a collection to send aid to those families of that particular church that had suffered great harm. This is what we see going on here. But in Acts 11, when the church is still kind of this eclectic hodgepodge, they're still in kind of the early workings and trying to, uh, trying to work together, the encouragement was for each person according to his need to do this. But as the church continues to grow and move and expand beyond the region of Jerusalem, uh, there has to be more thoughtfulness, excuse me, into how all this is to transpire. And so that's why when you make it to Acts chapter 15, you have the Council of Jerusalem, where they're having to deal with a number of theological and practical issues that have arisen. This is around the year 48 AD. And one of the things that the Council of Jerusalem has to reckon with is what we might call a foreign missions policy. Of course, you've got the moral requirements regarding the the planting of new churches. What are Gentile churches to be taught in terms of how they are to live as it relates to the law of Moses? But then on top of that, there is a special commission given to these missionaries to the Gentile regions uh, that Paul himself recounts in his letter to um, the Galatian church. This is Galatians chapter 2. When Paul and Barnabas have been commissioned to the Gentiles, Paul says that Peter, James, and John asked us only this to remember the poor in Jerusalem. Four years later, after that particular commissioning, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 16. I know I'm kind of trying to tie together a lot of various passages that pop up, but it's something that shows us that this is a concern uh, that traverses not just one letter in the New Testament, but we see pop up over and over again in several letters, be it in Acts or in Paul's epistles. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I ask if, if, if you would turn with me there for just a, a few moments. I think this is important. Paul's already begun to address this issue as he has already visited uh, the church of Corinth at, at least once. This was Paul's directive in his previous letter to the Corinthian church. He says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also am I 
directing you to do as well. On the first day of every week, that is, on the Lord's Day on Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Side note, Paul is not giving a, a minimum amount. He's just saying, according to your abilities, set aside and store it up so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, this is a weekly thing, and the church is to collect this on an ongoing basis. So when Paul shows up, they, ha- they can take the treasure chest as it is and be on their way to lug it back to Jerusalem. Uh, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In other words, what the, each church is supposed to do is they're supposed to uh, vote. They're supposed to appoint a particular person uh, to accompany Paul in bringing uh, the treasure chest. So it's not like Paul saying, hey, why don't you give me that treasure chest? I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. No, there's a certain degree of accountability that's going on here. But in other words, the, the, the basic premise that Paul is giving direction to all the churches, as he says here, not just Corinthian, uh, the, the Corinthian church, but Galatia as well, as well as the Macedonian churches that we heard about last week, that are Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica, there's a collection that is to be taken every Lord's Day uh, and laid aside until Paul's arrival. And then they are to certify by letter men who will accompany Paul back to Jerusalem. See, this is a big deal. A lot of logistical work this takes because of no online banking. Right? We just can't send, you know, today if, if our home office in Philadelphia and, and Glenside or Willow Grove, Pennsylvania needed uh, help, all we have to do is get our trusty uh, a treasurer, uh, all we have to do is get Eric to, to write a check and forward the funds, right? This takes a lot more legwork to get done. Each church is to find a man who is trustworthy to handle the money. Uh, probably somebody who can potentially ward off bandits, you know, as, as you're making your way by ship and by road, trying to uh, keep the collection safe. And of course, Paul said he would go but since he got held up, this is returning back to 2 Corinthians, one of the things that he's made clear here in this second letter to Corinth is he has now sent Titus to help with this collection. If you recall, Paul has now been held up in Macedonia, this region just north of Achaia, this region north of where Corinth is located. And so we come to 2 Corinthians, and it seems as though Corinth has neglected the weekly offering. may have begun initially to raise support, but it's something that's kind of fallen off their radar. It's not that they've been stingy, it's just that its level of importance has just kind of uh, teetered off. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. Titus has started the project, but now he's asking that Corinth ensures that they complete the task. The idea is it kind of kicked off to a great start, and then it's just kind of, kind of, kind of petered off. It's, and, and Paul's encouragement here is don't, don't neglect this. And that's the point we see of chapters 8 and 9. Paul is devoting a lot of time to focusing on the theological rationale for this massive collection, this massive diaconal work that's affecting fellow brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the Mediterranean in Jerusalem. You think of, as we considered last week, Paul Macedonia's fourfold example as a model for Corinth. Remember, these Macedonian churches, let them stand before you as a model for giving, Paul says to Corinth. They have given graciously despite their poverty, 
They gave beyond their capacity. They gave of their own volition, but they gave first and foremost to the Lord. That's what Paul had done here in these opening uh, five verses of chapter 8. So remember the Macedonian churches. They're much poorer than you, but they're doing a better job. And so now Paul drives home his intent here in verses 7 and 8. As he says, remember this. Don't neglect this. Notice how Paul describes the offering here in verses 7 and 8. It's not described as a tie, that, something that implies a certain percentage. It's not described as an exaction or a tax. If you notice here in verse, uh, verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command. Quite literally, I'm, uh, um, uh, it's not an exaction, but um, it's not a tax. You know, if you read about uh, uh, the Church of England in the 17th century, um, there was a tax. Uh, the tithe was seen as a tax. It was something that was essentially placed upon you, and you could be penalized if you did not pay it. That's not what the Paul is seeing this as here. It's not seen. He's saying, I'm not saying uh, imposing this upon you as an exaction. Um, it's not even to be described as a work that uh, now you're finally going to get on good side, if God's good side, if you, if you dump enough money in the treasury box. That's what we call an indulgence. It's one of the reasons the Reformation kickstarted was a criticism of that faulty view of giving. This should not even be seen as a repayment. This is not a quid pro quo. God, I've given to you, therefore you owe me. That is not how we are to view the offering either. Rather, Paul calls this what? He calls this an act of grace. An act of favor. A material expression of grace that patterns itself off of the spiritual grace that Christ has manifested in his death and resurrection from the dead. Something we're going to give consideration to next week where Paul will pattern the death and resurrection of Christ as a model for how we think about our wallets. Very practical. This is profoundly theological. You see, what, what Paul is getting at here is that Christian giving is to be seen not as a tax, but as an expression of gratitude. As he says here in verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and our love for you, make sure that you excel in this act of grace as well. You know, I, I used to teach high school before I went into the ministry, and I, I would get my annual teacher review as well, and you, you get, you know, uh, the things that, uh, you know, my, my boss did a, an excellent job of um, you know, what I might call the velvet-covered brick. He'd give the encouragement first uh, before he kind of laid into me on those areas that I needed to grow. He says, hey, look, your lesson plan's, you know, five out of five. Your, punc your punctuation, four out of five. Your dress, two out of five. Your availability, five out of five. Your rapport with the students, five out of five. So you say, here are the, here are the good things. Uh, but perhaps here are the things in which you need to, to shore up on. And we see here with Corinth, here's a church that had kind of the, the dump truck of grace has backed up and, and just lavished itself on this church. Here's a church that is reveling in these tremendous spiritual gifts and graces that the Lord has given. Those spiritual gifts that you see uh, in the first century during the apostolic era of tongues, prophecy, teaching, service. And Paul says here, take inventory of all those things that you already excel in. Uh, look, your faith, those, the, the things that you believe, you excel in the faith. You've confessed the right things. 
You excel in speech. Those things that you say, you're doing a great job. Your earnestness and zeal. In other words, this is not a lukewarm church. This is not like Laodicea. Oh, you're, you're so zealous uh, for the right things. You even excel in our love for you. In other words, there's no excuse to lack in any department. You have all the provisions that you have been given, but there is still one act of grace in which you need to excel in. It's the grace of giving. Isn't this what our Lord does in the opening chapters of Revelation when He addresses the seven churches? Everyone, He goes, this is where you excel in, this is what needs work. You know, it's not the Lord saying, I'm condemning you, you have, you have failed, therefore it, you know, I am uh, never going to speak to you again. It is persevere, sure up here before it is too late. It is the time of the annual review. And Paul here is giving a review for the Corinthian church. You're excelling in so many things, but you've treated the offering as something of lesser importance. And though Paul is saying this isn't a tax, we're still calling you to give for the sake of those in great need. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are in great need in Jerusalem because a famine has plagued that region for over a decade. Please help. I'm coming soon and I'll be taking a collection. I've sent Titus uh, ahead to try uh, to get you ready so that when I come, we can go ahead and move on so that we can send relief as quickly as possible. See, Paul's concern here is not how much they give. Rather, Paul's concern is how they give. Are they giving graciously? Are they giving grudgingly? Are they just kind of rolling their eyes going, okay, let me, let me do this and get it over with? Or are they seeing this as an opportunity to love their brothers and sisters in Christ who are in desperate need? This is not given here as an opportunity to try to buy God off. You're not justified by how much money you give. Again, that's an indulgence. We don't believe in that. God doesn't need your money. Psalm 50, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet here we have an opportunity to model Christ's own love for us. So we'll see in the passage next week. Christ, who had the riches of heaven, divested himself. He became poor so that out of his own poverty, we might become rich with all the spiritual blessings. And here we see that the, the material uh, concern and care that we give towards one another is a concrete expression of the, of the spiritual grace that we have in Christ. God doesn't need your money. We, we don't buy off God with our funds. There's only one way to reckon with sin, and that's with the blood of Christ. And it's through the shed blood of Christ at the cross, the free forgiveness of sins comes, and it comes freely through faith and repentance in His name. But now that Christ has died for us, He died leaving us an example that we are called to follow in that same path. And our wallet should take a cruciform, a cross-shaped look as well. In other words, what we see here is an expression of loving your neighbor as yourself. In particular, the focus is on your Christian neighbor. Not denying non-Christian, uh, unbelieving neighbors about you. The Paul's focus here is on the concern for those within the household of faith. Those suffering under the weight of famine. I think this passage helps us recalibrate our understanding of the collection box. How do you view it? 
Do you, do you view the, uh, the offering with a certain amount of suspicion? Do you give it the stink eye as you walk by, thinking that this is somehow an attempt for the minister to line his own pockets? Let me reiterate, with our own church polity, I have nothing to do with the finances. You as a church have voted on uh, my salary. I get that. I have nothing else to do with the finances. There's no way. I, I'm, I'm, I'm too stupid anyway uh, to try to, uh, to, to launder money off you guys. I don't even know how that works. Fortunately for you, I don't know how to balance my checkbook. Never mind. Do you view the, the, the collection box with resentment? Do you see it as a, as a type of tax? You, see, you view it begrudgingly. Do you view the collection box as a means to get God to lay off your back for a bit? It's like, well, you know, if I just give X amount of dollars, then maybe I could continue to indulge in some secret sin. Do you see the collection box as penance for the sins that you have indulged in in the past week? You go, oh, I've, I've failed miserably again, so how, how do I try to alleviate my conscience? I know, I'll give a little bit more. That's not the right way to approach this. Do you, try, do you view the, the, the collection box as leverage so that when you're in a pinch, you can now pray out to God, God, look how much I've given you. It's time for, it's time for you to pay a little bit back. It's some type of spiritual insurance policy. See, that, that's not how Paul's viewing the collection plate here at all. I think so many of us struggle with viewing the offering uh, collection plate in those terms uh, to one degree or another. But I think that just shows us how low a view we have of the mercy of God. God has given of himself freely. He's given us his only son to bear our sins. Though we are sinners deserving eternal wrath, he has reconciled us freely to God, to himself through Christ. So the table that we'll come to in a few moments reminds us of. We bring nothing to the table. Um, we, we don't come and uh, partake of the elements and are given a, a bill at the end of the night like, like you do when you go out to your favorite Mexican restaurant. And this is fully provided for. This is fully paid for. Great benefits found in Christ, but now the Lord says, now that I've done this for you, I'm calling you to model that same act of giving, that same act of grace and how you care for your own brothers and sisters in Christ. Walk in the same manner. Stop treating others as your next business venture or networking opportunity. Stop using others as a means for personal gain. Cut it with all the schmoozing and networking. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum of the law. This is what the collection signifies, that we are giving freely. We are seeking to love one another as Christ has loved us. As Christ has given himself freely, so we are to freely give. That is the analogy that Paul is laying down. This day and age, it's much different than the church in the first century. It is much easier to support missionaries overseas. Uh, typically, there's websites you know, you're able to give online. You don't even have to leave the comforts of your own home. There's no excuse. But how easy is it for us to treat the offering as something that is of little importance? When we receive our paycheck, we squander so much of it on entertainment. 
rather than providing basic items for those in need. It's hard to fathom when we live in a nation where you can get fast food and groceries 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's, forget, it's easy to forget all the places where they don't have such conveniences. More pointedly, I think it exposes a tendency in the modern mind to divorce spiritual duties from material duties. But I'm going to say again, we're not Gnostics. Christ has given His church distinct offices to show His concern for us consists not only in our spiritual well-being, but in sharing that we are cared for in both soul and in body. Was it that we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts, yes. Forgive us our sins. But also give us this day our daily bread. It's a real prayer. The, the Lord has great care for His people in terms of both body and soul. The offices that we have in the church connote this. You have the elders that oversee your spiritual well-being and, uh, and, your de- and the deacons uh, attend to that as well, but also concerns um, the material uh, care for the people of those in great need. Even if it's something as simple as somebody who is, uh, um, you know, has just had a hip replacement and they need somebody to mow their lawn. Christ has given His church an office that deals with those things to show that you are not without aid. Christ truly loves you in body and soul. It helps remind us that perhaps the material duties that we owe one another are in fact more spiritual than we might possibly think. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that as you have instructed us to love one another, that you would convict us in those areas that we might give not begrudgingly, but freely out of concern Uh, for our friends in need. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.